You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, May 15th, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Yep. And Evan Bernstein. How is everyone this fine evening? Super. Quite well. Quite good. Is that is that your English hello to us? That's that's my mid central Connecticut accent. Okay, great. <laughs> English uh, accent. You got Very it totally wrong, dude. <laughs> hey, do you guys know which episode this is? 409. 409. Formula 409. 409. Who cares? Because of the Beach Boys song? Because <laughs> the only significant 409 out there is Formula 409. That's Wait, right. was it a Beach Boys song or was it a Jan and Dean song? I always confuse um, it. It was a kitchen cleaning product. <laughs> what i thought no, it was there's a, there's a song <laughs> what like i love you 409 that's yeah i think that was a jingle from a commercial i think it i think it was Jane. oh yeah it's eight six seven five four oh nine that's it uh, thank you didn't i, didn't I, I just say that, that? no the, the 409 is a song written by brian wilson mike love and gary usher from the american rock and roll band the beach boys Never heard of them. Yeah, as if you didn't just read that off of Google, Steve. No, it was Wikipedia, <laughs> thank you. You learn something every episode. Anyway. Hey, guess what today is? 409. The, <laughs> the, the Ides of May. No, this, okay, so this, this, this day in history thing is in a way tragic, but in another way hilarious. It's hilariously tragic. Yes. Shakespeare would have been proud. Indeed. On May 18th, 1896, 1,300 people were trampled to death. That's the, that's the tragic part. At a celebration Sounds honoring it. Nicholas II's coronation, uh, because they were at a, this, this large celebration. Everybody was gathered in a field. There were thousands of people, some say hundreds of thousands of people, and they were promised presents, uh, including beer and pretzels. And a rumor spread that there wasn't going to be enough beer and pretzels for everyone. So they panicked and a stampede occurred and over a thousand people died and 1300 more people were injured. That evening, there was a ball that was already scheduled for Nicholas II uh, to attend and he was trying to decide whether or not to attend it. He ended up uh, going for it. Mystics, Russian mystics, claimed that they warned him, that he was warned that if he attended that ball, it was going to be not just a slap in the face to everybody who was killed and injured in the earlier stampede, but also that it would directly lead to his doom. What actually, and you know, things things did not go well for Nicholas II, if uh, you're at all aware of Russian history. Not not a good reign for him. It did end in his execution by the Bolsheviks. So things definitely, I think you could call it doom. But Doom-ish. did the mystics actually predict the doom based on mm-hmm. him attending this ball? According to at least the personal valet to the Tsarina, Yep. No. This guy, uh, Alexei Volkov, was apparently a bit of a skeptic. So here's what he said cool. about about the idea that the mystics said attending the, the coronation ceremonies would bring doom. He says, 
Later, many times in the suite and in society, I would hear it said or I would read that the disaster was a premonition of the misfortune that would befall the reign of Nicholas II. I can, in all good conscience, affirm here that at the time I never heard any such thing ever said by anyone. I have also come to the conclusion that since those statements did not come until later on with other disastrous events, those statements about Konkinka are just boring as the ideas did not come until after the fact. Back home in Russia, people love to attribute a sense of the occult and mysterious to events. What was this guy then dragged off and burned for being a heretic? Burned at the stake. No. Uh, <laughs> no, so apparently later on the mystics tried to claim that... They uh, retrodicted, they had... yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. A couple other interesting things. May 18th was also his birthday. May 18th, 1868. And on the exact same day, May 18th, 1896, while... Nicholas II was being coronated, the U.S. Supreme Court was upholding the constitutionality of separate but equal segregation laws in Plessy versus Ferguson. Mm, Ferguson. Yep. Isn't that interesting? Same exact yeah. interesting. interesting. I should mention that we're using, uh, when, when I say that this stuff happened 18th of May, we're using the old style dating, which concerns, you know, the, the way the Julian calendar kind of screwed everything up. So uh, uh, okay. in the... New style, it would be the 30th of May. Hail Caesar. Oh, to, that changes everything. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bob, tell us about your five senses in outer space. You know, first I wanted to talk about the guy that where I got this from. The pretty awesome guy. He's Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield. Has been called the coolest astronaut in the world, as if being That's just an cool. astronaut isn't enough, right? He's he the coolest was, uh, astronaut out of this world. <laughs> right. He was a commander of the ISS, or International Space Station, for the past five months, uh, the first Canadian to be the commander. So they're very proud of him. He, he relinquished his command and landed safely in Kazakhstan uh, on Tuesday, May 14th. Did you guys see the landing? I mean, it's not like this nice little ocean landing. I mean, they, there's no ocean there, so they kind of land on the ground. It looked like an explosion went off when it hit the ground. Yeah, All this, it looked like, terrifying. dust and dirt. It looked horrible. Wow. But um, so what did this guy do? <laughs> He's an astronaut, so obviously he was working many hours, 10-hour shifts, as a matter of fact, doing astronaut stuff like running experiments, doing maintenance tasks, and uh, but he was also on his off time communicating to the, to the world in thousands of pictures. He was taking pictures of all sorts of amazing things that he was able to see through, through, through his viewports. He did countless tweets. He chatted in real time with uh, James T. Kirk in the guise of William Chatner. He, uh, he unveiled the new Canadian $5 bill, and he was, according to NASA anyway, the first person to record a music video in space. Did you guys hear that one? Um, he worked yeah. with David Bowie. He worked with David Bowie, and he got his approval to tweak his famous song, Space Oddity, you know, ground cool. control to Major Tom. Um, uh, Hadfield, he added lines to reference things that were, that applied to him, like that, you know, that it was a Soyuz capsule that was taking him there and bringing it back. Also, he doesn't die at the end, right? Yeah, right. But he posted a lot of videos online, um, including uh, five videos for w what happens to your senses when you're in the space station. And I found them really interesting. So I just wanted to quickly go through what, what, what he had to say on these. Uh, the first he addressed was sound. So apparently there's a lot of noise on the space station. You could imagine with the constant hum of things like, um, you know, whirring machinery, fans and pumps, et cetera. I, I, I think that would just kind of drive me crazy but you know how how noises work you, you you get used to it and you would just eventually tune them out um i think i would i would mm -hmm. probably wear earbuds and listen to music all day so that's that's it for sound now vision i wasn't aware of this uh a lot of astronauts apparently complain about blurred vision on the space station do you guys ever hear that no I've, why why is mm -hmm. that i've well i wait is it 
Can I guess? Yeah, sure. Because I feel like I've heard something along these lines where in zero gravity, the shape of your eyeball can change. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely part of it. Um, they think, or according to Chris anyway, they, all the extra fluid in your head due to the microgravity. He's, he says this though is what, um, flattens the eyeballs and causes, and, and also causes swelling around the optic nerve. Now the mm-hmm. swelling apparently goes away, but surprisingly, the flattening of the eyeballs doesn't go away even after you get back on terra firma. It's like they, they stay, till when? They stay Ever. forever. Ooh. Well, that's, that's all he said. That's all he says. It just, Ouch. so you have to wear glasses. Whoa. And I'm not sure how much the swelling around the optic nerve also causes the the blurriness, but I don't think you're you're not going to you know get back to Earth and be blurry for the rest of your life, Jay. So I'm not saying that nobody has said that, but it's still an interesting after effect of of going on the space station that I never right. anticipated. So Bob, I read what I found one study dealing with that. This was a retrospective analysis of of 300 astronauts, and what they said is that half of all astronauts who were in orbital missions lasting more than six months. Developed changes in their refractive index, you know, their, their near oh. farsightedness. One in four astronauts who flew missions less than six months also reported eye problems. So they typically appear around six weeks into the mission. Now this report says that they could last for months after their return to Earth. Okay, doesn't doesn't say that it's um that months it's permanent. isn't bad. Yeah, okay, months isn't bad. Well, well worth it. Um, but there's another effect uh, to vision. Uh, do you guys know what that's from? Fle- flashes of light. I'll give you the hint. Astronauts, yeah. astronauts cosmic rays. Yeah, cosmic oh. rays mm. impinging on the retina actually cause astronauts to see flashes of light. What? Some, they see cosmic rays? Yeah, how awesome is that, Jay? Well, some oh my of, God. Some of them are especially sensitive to it, and they could see them even in the daytime. So they're seeing them, I don't know how often, but they can. it doesn't matter if it's dark or not. They could still see them. So uh, how how cool well, would that what be? Color, what color are they? What do they look yeah, like? Yeah, what do they look I, like? I, I don't photon, know. Right? Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know. I, I I would guess. I mean, if you're, I would guess it'd be like, pre, you know, pressing down on your eyeballs, or if you get hit in the head and you see stars. I think it would be kind of whitish. I don't think they'd be yeah. colored. Just random patterns. Or maybe like seeing but a lens flare or something. How cool is it to know that? Yep, I just got hit by a proton that was accelerated eons ago by tremendous energy by a supernova or maybe a black hole. How awesome would that be? I would love it to be able to say, yes, there's a cosmic ray. I just experienced one. Also, by the way, so I was just, you know, reading more deeply into the, into the, this one study. So the, the, um, flattening of the back of the eye tends to go away. There's also swelling of the nerve sheath. Yeah. And they talk about that the, they found changes to the retina. And the, what their concern is that there's differences in the hemodynamics of the retina and the eye in weightlessness, and, and that this may cause some permanent damage to the eye. So they, they do mention that there may be some permanent damage. And they specifically mention what would happen if astronauts started to get these kinds of eye complications halfway to Mars. Right. Know? Yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. gonna have to. They're gonna have to mm. study the, those effects and see if they can, you know, have the make, you know, be able to make a, a custom pair of glasses that would counteract it. You just need the artificial gravity, man. You got to rotate those ships and have artificial gravity, or at least install some gravity plating. Problem solved. It really mm. sucks that Easy. we're so con- connected to gravity. Like we actually really need gravity. Well, we kind of evolved with it. Yeah, so. I know, but. It, you know, we we have to own it. Like the only way we're going to get around it is, um, you know, modifying our DNA or nanotechnology or whatever. Like it's not an easy thing to get around. Yeah, but the uh-huh. cool, the important thing, Jay, is that we can simulate it with rotation or acceleration. I mean, gr- we could do that. We could do that right now. So just you know, rotate the bitch. 
Or go really fast. <laughs> How fast Rotate do you have to go now, to Hal? simulate gravity? 1G. 1G. Oh, right. What is fast is that? Rebecca, Rebecca, I'm not done laughing. <laughs> but how uh, it's acceleration. Fast is that, it's not fast, it's acceleration. <laughs> right. And the acceleration is one G, I'm being serious. And so but you would have to continue accelerating yes, though. Exactly. So right. that's right. useless. Yep. Okay. Until you go faster than the speed of light and then you gotta hit the air brakes. <laughs> then you got other problems with your eyes. Oh boy. All right, guys, we've got a few more senses here. Taste. Taste is significantly Yum. dampened on the space station. Uh, Chris that Hadfield sucks. likens it to eating with a head cold. Does not sound fun. So a lot of the mm. food on the space station that's available is actually very spicy so that the, the astronauts can actually taste it. And it's, it's very yeah. popular, the, the spicy stuff. It does make their um, poops worse, though. Oh, boy. Uh, smell also <laughs> Wait, can take a hit. We haven't gotten the smell yet. Okay. Chris yeah. says Which is that- good because of their disgusting poops. Exactly. Oh, oh God. Uh, Chris says that subtle smells are very tough to discern because there's so much fluid in the head and there's nasal congestion and the sinuses never drain. So it, uh, it impacts your smell as well. That would suck. Your sinuses don't drain. You're just constantly stuffed. Uh, how, how do you, but the pressure that that causes, I know when I get sinus infections, or sinus headaches, it is, it's practically debilitating. Oh, uh, you're 4F, Evan. You'd never be an astronaut. <laughs> well, you can't get sinus headaches and being weightless. Okay. Well, we can rotate the ship, but we can't come up with a sinus medication <laughs> for space. What the hell? That's a good point. All right. So the last one is touch. You, you would think that touch would, wouldn't really be effective, but um, it, it, there is some effect. Chris points out that two things happen. The bottoms of the feet get really soft, probably because you're not walking for months on end. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. On the other hand, or foot, the tops of the feet become incredibly sensitive because why, guys? Why do you think the tops of the feet become very sensitive and raw? Because there's, there's, there's more – There's more – Blood there? No, because you're con- – think about it. You're weightless. You're constantly using the tops of your feet to hook it around things and to prevent the bumping things mm-hmm. and to use it to stabilize yourself and to hold on. And he's saying after a while, it becomes like, really crazy sensitive because you're you're using it all the time. And you never you never use the tops of your feet. I mean, right? Um, so that's a, something well, you would never – Soccer players but- do. Yeah, soccer players. So a prehensile tail would be awesome in space. Yes, be very helpful. But again, sinuses are a no-go. Yeah, yeah. whatever. Hey, yeah, did you guys sucks. see that scientific experiment where the guy wrings out a wet cloth? Yes. This yes. is the guy. Mm-hmm. That's Chris a guy, Hunter. Jay. That's funny. He's I, awesome. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah I, that was the, the really cool thing. And I just highly recommend everyone to look it up on YouTube and just look at it. But I want to quickly tell you guys, like the idea that the water, um, the surface tension of the water kind of made it stick to his hands as he wrung out the cloth. It just turned into like this gelatin, he said. It feels like gelatin surrounding like your hands. Like the blob, yeah. Yeah. All right, thanks, Bob. Now, Evan, you're going to tell us about talking plants. This is a study by researchers at the University of Western Australia, and they have concluded that chili pepper plants, when placed in close proximity to basil plants, receive a benefit of a higher germination rate compared to, say, when chili pepper plants grow on their own. The chili pepper plants and basil plants were sealed off from each other using sheets of black plastic, and they controlled for the environment, the temperature, the water they received, airflow, gas, ventilation, and lots of different factors they controlled for. And they essentially, according to their report, cut all contact off from one plant to the other so that it could not have any sort of what perceived to be a direct benefit. Yet there was. The germination rate, they said, went higher. So there's some unknown mechanism of contact or perhaps communication, hence talking, occurring between the plants. But the researchers can't say what 
the mechanism is. They are hypothesizing that it's a uh, acoustic communication of some sort. Um, the audio waves would cause the very slightest sort of vibrations, which the chili pepper plants would apparently pick up and recognize as, well, a good neighboring plant, um, such as basil. Now, at the same time, their tests also showed that when a bad neighboring plant, such as fennel, is placed close to the chili peppers in the same setup, there's a detrimental measurement of seed germination. Uh, so this is directly from the article. Fennel plants release chemicals into the air and soil that are detrimental to most other plants, including chili peppers. Last year, the researchers set up mini gardens to study the interaction between the plants more closely. They were surprised to find that chili seeds germinated more quickly when the fennel plant was sealed off with plastic to block the transfer of those nasty chemicals. But because basil plants release chemicals that discourage weed growth, basil to the chili pepper plant is considered a good neighbor. And this is also from the article. The seeds germinated at a higher rate, even if the basil plant was sealed off with the black plastic. And that led them to conclude that the seeds could still sense the presence of a friendly plant when they couldn't get the standard chemical signals. So what do you guys think about that? I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical. <laughs> I know you're shocked. Shocked. Inconceivable. I've been re trying to read as much as I can about this. I mean, there does seem to be other studies showing that plants do put off some kind of acoustic emanations. Um, mm -hmm. But there's also – I read a, a great deal of skepticism about the conclusions of this study, that it's just way mm -hmm. too speculative. They have not dotted their I's and crossed their T's here. They haven't really isolated the acoustic signals and said that that is the factor. One uh, one author suggested that they um, – if they could record – the acoustic signals, and then play them back to plants that are not near the basil. So, mm -hmm. so literally isolating the the noise, and then show the same effect. Then that would be that would be pretty convincing evidence. But that that hasn't been done right now. All they have really is just a um, a hypothesis. I read. I was going through some websites looking at this too, and I could have sworn I saw a site that said that they actually recorded noises coming from the roots of some plants. They actually recorded it. Yeah, like they, there ha there are studies showing that. One of the <laughs> one of the friends I was speaking to, his name's Ben Long, and he, he's uh, a botanist who who read the article and he's he read the study and he looked at the signif statistical significance of the data, and he's not sure that there really is much of a difference in the germination rates that they're, that they're talking about. He thinks that that might be, you know, exaggerated. It could just be statistical noise. Otherwise. Yeah. So it's, it's not, it, there isn't this overwhelming uh, difference that's going on. It seems to be very slight. Yeah. So a preliminary doesn't keep it from getting reported sensationalistically in the press, but it's a, you know, it's not totally implausible, but it's preliminary. The results themselves may not be reproducible. And if they are, mm. then they have to figure out what the cause is. They have to they have to draw the lines of cause and effect. So it's a long way from saying that plants communicate with each other with sound waves. We are not there yet. Not there yet. Nope. All right. Thanks, Evan. Jay, you're going to take the last news item. This one is about flowing glass. Yeah, I learned a lot on this one. I um I didn't realize that an idea I had in my head for almost my entire life. Well, you know, but since I was what you know six seven years old, probably when I first heard about it. But glass is actually not a liquid. You know, I have so many pieces of information that crept into my head hanging out with 
my brothers and, and my friends and everything when I was a little kid. And I, I distinctly remember, and of course Steve will argue this, but I remember walking to, uh, there was like some weird abandoned farmhouse not far from our, uh, from where we grew up. And I remember you guys talking about the glass in the windows and how it's thicker at the bottom because the glass is like a really slow liquid. And that, you know, you can see it in like old West houses where the, the thick part of the glass is at the bottom or, uh, some people say that in cathedrals you could see the same thing. The thicker part of the glass is at the bottom. Apparently somebody just started making that up or just surmised that, but they were wrong and it just spread like wildfire. And most people think that glass is this incredibly slow liquid. The panes of glass in like old churches did have thicker glass on the bottom. And that's mainly because of the, or primarily because of the production process. They would flatten the glass and they would spin it and into a disc and then cut it into panes. And because they spun it, the, uh, the, the outer edges would be thicker and they would put the thicker ends at the at the bottom because that's that's taking most of the force. So that's why it was thicker. It was thicker, but it wasn't because if it was flowing. It was because that's how it was made. Yeah, that's what I heard. Like I I remember hearing the glasses liquid myth ages ago, but uh, you know, also ages ago, slightly fewer ages ago, I I heard that more reasonable explanation. So I yeah. didn't think that the uh, glasses a uh, liquid thing was still around. So what the reason why we're talking about this was very recently uh, in a journal called Nature Communications, a new study uh, presented findings from Gregory McKenna and his team. Gre McKenna is a professor of chemical engineering at the Texas Tech University, and they focused on an amazingly old piece of amber. Um, and for those of you who don't know, amber is actually a fossilized tree resin. And they use that amber, amber for the study because its atoms are not arranged in a regular order. And I'll get more, I'll get into that in a little bit. So McKenna said, what we found was that in 20 million years, the amber changed density by only 2.1%. What we found challenges the way we look at glasses. And when I say the word glasses, I, I think that's the way scientists refer to the plural of glass or a, you know, a glass meaning a piece of glass. They say glasses. I think they're talking about different types of ty glass. Different types of yeah. glass. Amber, amber being one and. I just didn't want people to think I was talking about like my glasses. Eyeglasses. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Talking about different types of glass. Yeah. Glassy materials. What we're talking about with fossilized glass is it's, it's unlike a crystalline structure, which is organized, right? So if you can picture what the carbon say in a diamond is, you know, it's, it, there's some type of lattice work or structured way that the atoms organize themselves. Amber, um, as a, um, example of, normal glass is non-crystalline and it makes it a great baseline for studying the nature of glasses. So the team was particularly interested in something called glass transition and I had never heard about this before. A glass transition is the temperature where a material changes from a flexible state to a hard state. The properties of a glass will change depending on how slow or fast you cool it. And they were saying that this piece of amber they consider it to be in a cooling phase for 20 million years, which is really weird if you think about it. It isn't like a, a single temperature that you get to and then it turns into a solid. It's how long are you cooling it for? And then its properties will change depending on how long you cool it for. That's insane, but it's the truth. It's really cool. Jared, look, I was looking around a little bit about the uh, other research into whether or not glass flows. I, I found one analysis that said that uh, glass – will sag given enough time, but that even the uh, least viscous or the, the most flowing, if you will, glass 
uh, germanium oxide glass would take 10 to the 32 years to sag. Oh which my of course God. is, is significantly longer than the age of the universe. So, so yeah. okay, whatever. At that point, I would, yeah, you can do use math to figure out that absolutely yeah. it's going to sag. But for all, yeah, as but far it, as I'm concerned, it's not sagging. If it takes know? longer than the age of the universe, that's yeah, not sagging. Right? It's not sagging. The, guys, the bottom line in my mind is that liquids flow for one reason because there's no strong forces that that are holding those molecules together. Uh, the atoms in glass, though, are different. They, they, the chemical bonds that they have are are held together very tightly, and therefore they don't flow. Therefore, glasses don't flow. That's the bottom line. It's all about it's all mm-hmm. about the, the chemistry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks, Jay. Uh, Rebecca, you're going to give us a special report. This is really a book report. You've recently read the book Ender's Game. I like calling it a book report. It makes me feel like I'm in the seventh grade again. Mm-hmm. It's good. Um, yeah, a lot of people have asked us over the years to do a regular sort of book review section. So uh, I've been reading a lot of science fiction lately, and I mentioned a few months ago that I had read Foundation and hated it, and that got a lot of funny, uh, angry responses. So I, I thought maybe uh, we could talk about another science fiction classic that I read and uh, disliked. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, and also this is, um, this is relevant because there is a film of this coming out soon, which maybe we could do a review of because it's going to be another, you know, space uh, sci-fi movie. Space oddity. Could be interesting. So yes, Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. It's the story of a, teeny tiny six-year-old boy named Ender Wigan, who's drafted into the military, along with dozens of other kids his age. They attend battle school, where they play games designed to train them to eventually join a war against the Buggers, a powerful alien race that attacked Earth some 60 or 70 years prior. And Not the Buggerers, that's something different. No, 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 I, you know... <laughs> You can read into it what you will if you know about Orson Scott Card's present feelings toward homosexuals that oh, the gosh. enemies in this book are called buggers, but I'm not sure that it was, <laughs> it was meant, but yeah. Um, so yeah, these are, uh, an alien race. They attacked Earth, uh, about 70 years prior to the setting of the book. And, uh, when they attacked originally, they were just barely defeated and some humans think just temporarily defeated. So they're preparing for this, uh, this new war against the buggers. So Ender proves to be extraordinarily intelligent and good at every game in battle school. And the adults running the school play mind games with him in order to train him to be the greatest military mind that has ever existed. So this was first published as a short story in 1977 and later published as a novel in 1985. And in 1985, it won the prestigious Nebula Award. And the next year, it won the equally prestigious Hugo Award. Yes. And uh, about a week or two ago, the first trailer was released for the upcoming film starring Harrison Ford. So obviously, this is a much beloved and respected classic of science fiction, um, which is why it physically pained me to hate it as much as I hated it. In fact, the only thing I hated worse than the book as a whole was Ender Wigan, the most pretentious, insufferable, perfect little angel of death who has ever existed in a fictional universe. Oh, my God. He's 
He's six years old at the start of the novel, and he's not just super smart. He thinks and strategizes, and he wallows in self-pity like a 30-year-old. His story is genuinely depressing to me, because it's so obviously the wish-fulfillment fantasy of a nerd who got bullied in school. Uh, All the kids hate him because of how smart and talented he is. Bigger, sociopathic kids like his older brother pick on him and threaten him. And he doesn't, Ender doesn't want to, but he does beat them to a bloody pulp as needed. The adults don't step in and stop the bullying, but secretly they're watching his every move and talking about how much they love him and they care for him. The entire novel is ridiculously violent, but at every step it's made painstakingly clear that Ender has no choice but to destroy everything and everyone, even though he loves them. Uh, And as I mentioned, Ender feels a great deal of self-pity, but whatever guilt he feels for his violence is obviously considered misplaced by the novel. And so the reader is constantly made to understand that Ender himself is completely without fault, blameless. I think it's a really cheap way for the author to have this intensely violent revenge fantasy without the trouble of any real self-reflection or uh, moral quandary. So, yeah, I I hated it. Like on, on the good side, it was a fast read and it was and I think it's an, an entertaining idea, the idea of kids training to join the military, you know, like super children. I like I like books about that sort of thing normally about super kids murdering. Hey, other when did kids. when did that movie come out um. where it's like the the protagonist was a teenager who got really good at this video game, and it turns out it was that last Starfighter. Yeah, right? Starfighter. Uh, that's it. Oh like, yeah, the last Starfighter. Yeah, I love that movie. Well, there you go. Yeah, that yeah, was awesome. Me too. That See? that was in fact. I mean, I haven't seen it since I was eight or whatever, but I yeah, that was, that was a great. That, I, was, that, was, great that was basically a ripoff of the Ender's Game kind of thing. I suspect it, when did it, it, it date though. Starfighter 84 something are, you going to, are we going to guess when we can look it up in Oh yeah seconds? it's well Evan like nailed it it is 1984 uh, and this novel wasn't published until 1985 the short story was published in 1977 but there you go. uh I mean did I don't know was did that inspire the movie on a I don't know. Okay, thanks, Rebecca. Evan, it's time for Who's That Noisy? Sure is. I'm going to go ahead and play for you again last week's Who's That Noisy. Here we go. All right. What do you think of that? Very cute. <laughs> very. It is very cute. Very tiny, squeaky little animacule. It is. It is. That's the desert rain frog. Yeah. And I saw the video of it, Ev. Mm-hmm. It was so cute to me that it was actually painful. I felt like at any moment the poor little guy could just fall to pieces, you know? Right. <laughs> right. Like I mean, you couldn't have drawn it as a cartoon any cuter than it actually is. So yeah, everyone must look up the Desert Rain Frog, you know, millions upon millions of hits on YouTube. A lot of people are enamored with this little creature and the little noises it makes. It is adorable. Where does it live? Found in Namibia and South Africa. Uh, subtropical, tropical dry shrubland and sandy shores. In fact, I think the one that has the most hits on YouTube uh, showing this frog has little grains of sand all over it. Yeah, you know, get I up saw really that tight one. On it, so. Yeah. Cool. Who won that one this week? Uh, yeah, well, a lot of people got it correct. But from our drawing, we have Evan Raskin. 
your name was drawn, and you are this week's winner. So congratulations for guessing correctly. And I understand you have a puzzle for this week. I do have a puzzle for this week. I would like to ask you all, who here likes cake? Me! Yeah. No, I mean, who doesn't? Yeah. Who wants a piece of cake right now? Come on. I want all the cake. The cake is a lie. Whoa, what? <laughs> the cake is a lie. Eight of you want cake, okay? But I have a knife that will only allow me to make three cuts into this cake. Yet I want to give eight people an equal-sized piece of cake. So how can I cut this cake using only three cuts and wind up with eight equal-sized pieces? I know how to do it. Nah, don't tell anyone, Jay. <laughs> it's for the audience to know, to guess. This is a classic puzzle. This is a good one. WTN at theskepticsguide.org is the email address, or drop us a note on our forums, sguforums.com. And don't forget, folks, Who's That Noisy has its own little sub-forum uh, amongst our forums. So be sure to place your answer there. Good luck, everyone. Thanks, Evan. All right, let's go on to do a couple of quick pieces of feedback, a couple of quick emails. The first one's actually from uh, the fourth novella brother, Joe, who mm. called me right before we recorded the show because mm. he listened to last week's show where I said that I um, clean my toothbrush under the water hot out of the tap, and he wanted to make sure that our audience knew that you shouldn't have your water heater set higher than 120 degrees. <laughs> Why not? Um <laughs> Well, you hurt yourself. I thought he was going to inform you that that wasn't your toothbrush all those years. That'd <laughs> <laughs> be the energy so, expenditure. It's two reasons. One, it's it's a waste of energy, and two, uh, you could burn yourself. So uh, if you don't have like a temperature gauge on your water heater, usually there's a line where you're supposed to set it. So just make sure you don't set it above the the line recommending how hot it is. But also, you should be able to like have your hands under the water as hot as it comes out of the tap without it burning you if you if there's no way to to um to read on the dial what the temperature yeah. is but 120 is should be the target temperature if you can set it that way i think it's an especially Thanks, good tip for for those of us who uh you know have children um yes especially children and old people in the home mm -hmm. and I, we should mention that our brother joe is a home energy expert which is why he felt the need to tell me that um yep yeah, so thanks joe one email actually this, we had multiple emails, so I'm not going to actually read any, uh, but asking us to comment on the Atacama specimen, especially since it was featured in the Disclosure Project and uh, the recent movie, Sirius. Do you guys, any of you see or hear this, hear about this? No. We've been getting tons mm -hmm. of emails to asking us to take a look at this. But you guys are familiar with the Disclosure Project, right? This is the project of Stephen Greer. Yes. And yeah, essentially. He was interviewed by Joe Rogan. I remember we spoke with about, yeah. I did a little report on the Joe Rogan show, uh, several weeks, several episodes ago. And that was the person he was interviewing. So the, the Atacama specimen is supposed to be a six, a six inch tall humanoid skeletal remains, which are claimed to be an alien. Now these emerged in Chile in the Atacama desert around 2003, um, were then sold to a ufologist in Spain. And is now the uh, part of the UFO mythology. The claim right. is that the creature is um, is an alien-human hybrid because of all of its distorted features and, of course, its diminutive size. The owner has a, apparently has had multiple scientists take a look at this at the specimen. What typically happens in cases like this is the the proponent or the true believer or whatever ha has some anomalous specimen. 
Remember the Star Child Skull? Same oh, exact sure. scenario. You know, Lloyd Pye being the collector at that point. They shop it around to experts and the experts don't really know what to do with it. You know what I mean? It's not like they're an expert in mummified small people remains from the desert. You know what I mean? They, <laughs> I mean, maybe if they took it to an Egyptologist who actually is, you know, an expert in desert mummies, but they bring it to biologists or physicians or whatever. And until they find somebody willing to give them an opinion, which, so that's a little bit of a selection process going on there. And then the appeal, the opinion usually is something to the effect of, I don't know what it is, you know, and, and then they, to say, oh, well, it can't possibly be a human because this guy doesn't know what it is, so therefore it must be alien. That's usually the process they go through. Or they do some kind of analysis and they just get it wrong because they're not used to analyzing this sort of thing. Uh, in this case, the specimen was brought to a Stanford scientist who did a bone density test and based upon the bone density test claimed that the it was from a child of five to six years old, which is incompatible with the size of the specimen. Right. It's, about, it's about six inches. So therefore, they're saying, therefore, it can't be a fetus because it's five to six years old. Therefore, it's something anomalous. However, there's a problem with that analysis. And that is, and this is something that uh, experts have learned from analyzing Egyptian child mummies. And that is that the mummification process increases bone density. Hmm. What is this specimen? Well, it looks for all the world like a human, perfectly normal human fetus, all the parts are there. They're all in the right place. They're all in the correct dimensions, but they're distorted. The head is squished to make it look more, more narrow and the head elongated. Mm -hmm. So it's just distorted, you know. Now, of course, other experts have analyzed it, including uh, people who are familiar with the anatomy of fetuses. And uh, one such doctor, Dr. Francisco Gabalondo, said, taken as a whole, the proportions of the anatomical structures, skeleton and softer parts, the level of development of each one of its bones and its macroscopic configuration allow us to interpret it without any shadow of doubt as a completely normal mummified fetus. Both based on the total length of the body as well as the length of the bones, it can be estimated that it's a fetus of approximate gestation period close to 15 weeks. Now, not satisfied with that, the proponents had its DNA tested. First, if it has DNA... Yeah, right. Already we could say, well, it's probably not alien. Mm -hmm. Well, look at the damn thing. It, lo it looks like a human skeleton. I mean, you don't even need to ask if there's DNA. There's got to be DNA if it looks like that. Right. J just like the giants on Prometheus. Yeah. <laughs> so exactly they, the they tested its DNA and they found that the DNA is 100% human. What are the odds? They analyzed the mitochondrial DNA and found the mitochondrial DNA to be not only 100% human, but consistent with the mitochondria from that region of the world, from Chile. Mm. Well, that can only mean uh, one thing, of course. I was well, an alien impregnated the Therefore, woman. they hybrid, conclude hybrid. it's a hybrid. Right, mm. they conclude it's a hybrid because it's a hybrid. DNA is 100% human. <laughs> yeah. It is the magical 100%. mix of a female human and a male human. This is now the Space third human. case that we have talked about where, they, where the researchers did that. The Atacama specimen, the Star Child Project, the DNA, any DNA that's been identified is completely human. The mitochondrial DNA is not only human, but from a female from that region of the world. And then, and the, uh, the Bigfoot DNA, Bigfoot. it's all human. You know, it's human plus some other anomalies, which, you know, 
could could they be artifacts? No, it's a human alien hybrid or human Bigfoot hybrid. It's ridiculous. It's human. That's what the evidence shows. But, you know, they, they demonstrate that even in the face of incontrovertible evidence that the specimen is in fact human, they'll still interpret it as being alien, whatever, whatever, or beat or Bigfoot or whatever they want. I reject your reality and place it with, replace it with my own. And substitute my own. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, this is probably the result of a very sad story. You know, this mummified fetus found wrapped in a cloth in the middle of the desert probably was an illegal abortion that was then just discarded. That, that's the simplest explanation. For this specimen, we don't have to hypothesize alien-human six-inch-tall hybrids. But Stephen Greer, Disclosure Project. Yeah, it's made a whole movie about it. Uh, yeah. Oh. So oh, well. there, you, there you go. Greetings, SGU listeners. Do you know what to do in August? Come to Stockholm, Sweden, and meet astronaut Christer Fuglesang. Activist Haley Stevens, stats guru Hans Rosling, undercover health journalist Anna Besean, and many more at the 15th European Skeptics Congress. Friday the 23rd to Sunday the 25th of August in Stockholm, Sweden. The 15th European Skeptics Congress. www.euroskepticscon.org www.euroskepticscon.org Joining us now is Heather Berlin. Heather, Heather, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Thank you. I'm great to be here. And Heather is an assistant professor of psychiatry and neuroscience at Mount Sinai School of Medicine, and she just gave an excellent talk at Nexus this year, where we met her for the first time, and just had to have her on the show. So thanks again for joining us. Uh, so Heather, you're a neuroscientist with an interest in uh, the neurological basis of mental illness, uh, but you also wanted to chat with us tonight about the, the neuroscientific basis of consciousness. So why don't you tell us about that? Well, I mean, what first got me interested in neuroscience was this conundrum when I, I discovered myself sort of in the world and having all these experiences and feelings and emotions. <laughs> I mean, I just found myself here and thought, um, where do all these thoughts come from? So I was, I was quite young. I remember I was about five years old and I asked my father one day, I said, where do my thoughts come from? And can I keep them when I die? Because I had this sort of obsession with, with death. And well, he said, they come from your brain. And I said, well, how? And he said, well, I'm not quite sure, but maybe when you grow up, you should become a psychiatrist and figure that out. So that wasn't really where all the answers were, but um, that began my quest to try to understand how our brain creates our thoughts and our consciousness and our awareness. And that my quest was kind of trying to cheat death. And as I went on through my studies, I discovered that when the brain goes, your thoughts go. Um, but I remain fascinated with how they're interrelated and connected. So tell me w- how you conceptualize how the brain produces consciousness. I know that there isn't any like one final answer to that, but how would you explain that? Well, I mean, there are a lot of different theories out there. And there, there's the sort of main quest in this field is trying to understand what they call the neural correlates of consciousness, which means that any thought percept feeling has a distinct set of neurons that fire that, for example, give you the sensation of seeing the color red or smelling a rose. And what neuroscientists are trying to do now is to track the specific set of neurons that correspond to any one 
percept. And so with modern technology, we're getting closer and closer to be able to do that. And once we can solve that problem, once we can say map out the neural correlate to every thought you have, the next question becomes, they call it the easy problem. The -hmm. next question is what they call the hard problem. And that is, why is it that these, these neurons firing and these neurotransmitters kind of slushing around, how does that correlate to this, what feel as if they're metaphysical perceptions? And we might not ever be able to understand that fully. At least some some people say that we might ne- never be able to understand that because we're sort of limited by the very apparatus that we're trying to study. We're limited by the cognitive capacity of our brain to understand how the very thing works. Uh, yeah, that's what philosophers call qualia. Why do we actually experience red? Mm-hmm. And what's the difference between you know neurons firing in our brain doing some calculation and other neurons firing and giving us something that we subjectively experience? Yeah. My personal take in it, on it, I think I. I I like Daniel Dennett's uh, mm. approach in that. Well, maybe the they're really. They, well, no, he he does not agree with the P zombie idea. He thinks that there is no hard problem. That once you solve all the easy problems, that's consciousness. It's sort of an emergent property, and you know there is nothing else that you need to explain. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean it's a very popular view. I I, I think it kind of explains away the problem, but. It's not very satisfactory, at least to me, um, because he almost explains away consciousness itself. And I've had some discussions with him. For example, the idea of, of the experience one has of pain. He'll, he'll say that's sort of almost an illusion. You're not actually experiencing pain. And, you know, you get into these philosophical debates. And I, as a neuroscientist, just try to look at the data. But one theory of consciousness that I, that I like and is becoming more and increasingly popular in the world of consciousness research is a theory by someone named Giulio Tononi called the integrated information theory of consciousness. And, and that idea is basically that any system that has a high degree of differentiated integrated information has some level of consciousness. And he, he has this calculation, mm-hmm. which he calls phi. It's a measure of consciousness. So basically, it means consciousness is substrate independent. So you could have it in a brain because it happens to be a highly, um, a, you know, a system that has a high degree of integrated differentiated information, but it can also eventually be in a computer. So it's substrate independent, and it's a sort of information processing type of theory of consciousness. How substrate independent are we talking though? I mean, could you have like tinker toys that uh, if it's big and complex enough could experience some level of consciousness? Yeah, I mean, but the problem is it would have to be so complex. It would be very difficult. You'd have to have, you know, tinker toys that probably go from here to the moon and back again and to get to such a level of complexity that it has any kind of experience. So, I mean, the, the thing that the, the the criticism of that, of Julio's view, is that it, it borders on panpsychism because basically it means that anything can have some degree of consciousness and then and then consciousness loses its meaning because if any system can have a, like, let's say a low degree of what he calls phi, which is a measure of consciousness, then what does really mean you know that anything can have a certain degree that any system no matter how small would have a certain level of consciousness so that's sort of one of the criticism heather i think we need to define system a little bit because when you said you use the idea of say building this really complicated system of of legos or whatever like that was bob's example you know i would imagine that you there are a few things that have to be present like the 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 consciousness has to be able to communicate to different components of itself you know in our brain you know the workings of our brain uses electricity to communicate to itself and to to do what it does right mm-hmm. so I would, i'd imagine that you'd need some some type of way for those components to communicate with each other and over long distances it would be really 
slow. It wouldn't it wouldn't be able to like do what we do. Right. Yeah, I mean, so so like the example that that Julio uses, like there are bits of information, you know, so if this bit is on and how it connects to the bit next to it. But the, the example that he would use is that he would say, for example, um, you have these diodes in a camera and if and, you know, or pixel, you know, if one of them goes off, the one next to it is not affected. So that would be, you know, no degree of integration of information. But if you have one bit or let's say a neuron and whether it fires or not affects the neuron next to it, whether that fires or not. And that would be, you know, integrated information. And so you have to have a high degree across many, many bits of integrated information to create a system that is interconnected. And so that when one neuron or, or, or bit, you know, fires in one area, it can affect one or a neuron many neurons away because the whole system is interconnected. So yeah. here's what I find unsatisfactory about that, however. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but are you saying that it's merely a factor of the degree of, of complexity of interconnectedness and communication? Because there are parts of the brain that are just as complex as other parts of the brain and don't seem to have any conscious. Like the cerebellum what? is always my favorite example. The cerebellum is just about as complex as the, as the cerebrum, but as far as, uh, as far as I know, there's no cerebellar consciousness. So it's not just the complexity, the interconnectedness. It's got to be wired to produce consciousness in some way. Well, I agree. I mean, one of another sort of criticism, one of my criticisms of Julia's theory is that because I'm also very interested in the the unconscious. There are many, many very complex processes that occur outside of awareness that go on to affect our behavior. So they're meaningful, right? Mm-hmm. And so the question is, if those those processes that are occurring outside of awareness that go on to affect our behavior, they must also have a high degree of, of integration of information. There's a lot of complex processing that goes on outside of awareness. In fact, most of what a complex processing that occurs goes on outside of awareness. For example, you know when you when you take in a bunch of facts and then they say sleep on it. Basically, your unconscious is processing that information. You wake up and then you have the answer or you have a flash of insight, right? The, mm-hmm. the moment of insight. So. You know, what I would argue is that that those unconscious processes would also have a high degree of integrated information, and that would go against Julio's theory. Exactly. So, so but what he says is basically it's it's a theory that could be it needs to be um, tested. And, and if you can show, you know, that there you can you have an hypothesis and you can prove it or disprove it, you know, then you can modify the theory. The problem, the other problem with the theory is that it's so complex, it's so difficult to actually quantify this measure of five. They can't even do it in a in a in a small system. Maybe, you know, um, eight, I think, or 12 points of information. They're starting to try to calculate it now, but it's so difficult to actually quantify that it's hard to use it experimentally. But the point is that at least it is a theory. It's starting to get at, to help sort of give a framework for all the experiments that are going on in the world of, of consciousness research. And because ultimately we do need a theory of consciousness so we can decide whether does a baby have it? Does a computer have it? You know, does a person in a comatose state have it? We, we ultimately, we need an overarching theory. Another theory is, is Bernie Barr's theory of consciousness as well. I mean, so there are a few theories out there. But I mean, as just sort of, I think you got to start somewhere. And as a neuroscientist, we kind of just get into the nitty gritty and start with just basic experiments to try to understand consciousness. I agree with you, Heather. What I'm really fascinated about is the difference between conscious and subconscious processing. What is the difference? I think, right? I think that's the essence of the of the question that we're trying to answer here. Yeah. So there's so assuming that the brain is turned on. So it's important to distinguish between wakefulness. That is the brain being awake and not being in a comatose state or a drug induced state or in deep sleep. So assuming the brain is fully turned on and awake, 
then you can say, okay, you are conscious of a particular thing in the environment versus not conscious of, of other things that are happening. And where is that distinguished? Where, where does that take place? What in the neural circuitry differentiates something that you're consciously aware of versus what you're not aware of? And, and, and experiments are starting to sort of, um, suss that out. And one, one idea is that what brings a certain sort of percept into awareness is, um, synchronized, uh, firing of neurons across the brain. So that is neurons firing. And usually people talk about this in a 40 Hertz oscillation. So in the gamma range of firing that somehow that syncs up neurons and neurons that kind of fire together. Um, and they almost call it, they call it a coalition of neurons firing together is what you're aware of at any given moment. And those coalitions can form and stay in consciousness for a second or two. They can last longer if you attend to something. So if you attend to something, you can keep a coalition of neurons in consciousness for longer. And then they kind of die out and a new coalition of neurons emerges and they're all starting to fire in sync and fire together. So that's one theory of why certain things are in consciousness at any given moment versus other things. So there's a certain threshold of enough neurons firing together that then you become aware of whatever it is they're quote unquote thinking about. Where, mm -hmm. is, that, is that what you're saying? But if, yeah. if less than that, and it's, that's a subconscious process that, that has, just hasn't risen to the level of, of awareness. Yes. And, and it also helps with what they call the binding problem. So there's no sort of, man in the machine, like where all the information comes together and there's someone sort of viewing it like a movie, you know, this Cartesian theater. But really you have, let's say, you have neurons firing in the visual cortex and the auditory cortex, um, and maybe in the motor cortex, and they're not all coming together in one place, but they're firing in these, in these separate areas in sync, in, yeah. in a similar range. That's what brings them together. I always understood it like the conscious part of your brain is really perched on top of all this other function that like a lot of function that's going on it's kind of like we're, we're really it's like we're experiencing a very narrow corridor of what's actually happening in our brain because all the other supporting functions are doing all these different things that we really don't want to be aware of they need to happen behind the scenes right yeah i mean so consciousness has a very limited capacity so m much of what's going on is happening outside of awareness. It also takes a lot of energy for things to be in consciousness. So, so it's a very selected bit of information that comes into awareness at any given time. And most of what's happening is happening behind the scenes. And from what you're saying, then, can different parts of the brain be conscious at different times? Or I guess different parts of the brain are contributing to your consciousness of the moment? Yeah, I would say it more the, the way you said it in the... um in the latter. Um, so I wouldn't say that different parts of your brain are conscious, but I would say different parts of your brain are contributing to consciousness more or less at any given time. I mean, basically, the, a big question is how much of the brain do you need for consciousness? Because, you know, you can get huge lesions in the brain. And I work with these brain lesion patients, and they're still conscious. They might have specific deficits in consciousness. So, for example, they they can't see color anymore or, mm -hmm. um, you know, they can't see different things in space. But but they're still, ha they're still aware. So how much of the brain do you actually need for there to still be conscious awareness? And this is a, a question we don't we don't know. Yeah, clinically, we, we, the rule of thumb is you need your brainstem in one hemisphere, but it may be less than that. But that's a, you know, that's, if you, um, have one hemisphere, you can be conscious. Yeah, but I think you can have even less than that. I mean, yeah. and some argue you just, you don't even need a cortex. And that's, that's quite controversial. That I would have to disagree well, with, but there's evidence, you know, from children who are born without cortexes, um, that, that they have some, 
some type of what might be consciousness or at least feeling they might feel something let's move now to uh more about your your personal research involving uh mental illness can you tell us what you're doing so right now i'm i'm doing research to try to understand the neural basis of impulsive and compulsive disorders. And particularly more recently, I've been focusing on obsessive compulsive disorder. So we're trying to understand what the, the neurocircuitry that's involved with the disorder so that we can hopefully develop better treatments uh, for the disorder. So the research involves um, neuroimaging studies, and we're also doing something called deep brain stimulation, which is a new novel treatment for treatment-resistant OCD. So can you uh, define for us or encapsulate what you found so far? What, what, what's the malfunction? What's happening in, in people who have OCD? Well, there's a number of things uh, going on. The thing that we're focusing on is um, uh, malfunction in the subcortical part of the brain called the basal ganglia. And um, what I'm looking at in particular is people who have contamination type OCD. So these are people who, you know, have a sort of um, obsessions that they're, that, that they're going to get some sort of disease or they, they think things are contaminated and they don't want to touch them. And then they have these, um, in, lo- in order to relieve the anxiety that's produced by these obsessions, they engage in these compulsions, like, for example, washing their hands over and over again. And what we're looking at is actually that instead of it being a top-down disorder, that is the thoughts that are the primary thing that are controlling the disorder and causing the behavior, we think it's more of a bottom-up And by that, I mean, it's a sensory processing deficit that occurs first, which then leads to the behaviors that then leads to the cognitions. So what we're finding is that people with contamination type OCD are hypersensitive to disgust, both disgusting images. And we're also we're doing something very novel now looking at odor in the scanner. And we're finding that they're hypersensitive to disgusting odors. And the part of the brain that has to do with disgust is called the insula. And they have hyperinsula activation compared to healthy people. What sort of odors do you use in the lab? So we're giving them uh, odors of feces, of uh, garbage, and urine. Are these the actual products, or have you formulated a synthetic feces? (laughs) They are synthetic. And actually, interestingly, the OCD patients, a couple of them are very concerned. They want to know, is it the real product or is it synthetic? Um, So it is synthetic, but it does smell very real. Mm -hmm. Heather, I can beat all those. (laughs) Call me if you need need something like really over the top. Just shoot (laughs) shoot me an email. I'll help you out. When we run over out of odors, I'll I'll give you a call. But yeah, I mean, it's so it's actually very novel. We built this thing called an olfactometer that we can distribute the scents in the scanner. And we also give them pleasant scents as well, like banana and chocolate and vanilla. Um, but what and they, they so they, they react normally to the, the positive smells, but they seem to be hypersensitive to the negative smells. And so the next step actually is we're working on this project called um, real time feedback. It's basically neural feedback. They're given their in real time information in the scanner, they can look at their own brain activation. And just like biofeedback, when you're sort of given your heartbeat information and told to do what you can to try to lower it, we're telling them the same thing. You know, this is your insula firing and we show it to them in real time. And we say, now try to do some strategy that can get yourself to decrease that, that insula activation. And in healthy people so far, they're able to do that. They can devise some sort of strategy to downregulate their insula activation. And in, and what that does in essence is it decreases their disgust response. 
So the next step would be to try to do it in OCD patients using this neurofeedback. But do you think so? Essentially, here there's a relationship between the the, the cortex and deep regulatory parts of the brain, like the basal ganglia. And what you're saying is that you think that the the primary malfunctions in the the primitive regulatory parts of the brain, like the basal ganglia, and not in the cortex of patients with OCD. Is that what you're saying? Well, it's a, it's a circuit. So the circuit that's involved in OCD involves the basal ganglia um, and involves and involves the cortex in particular the prefrontal cortex is known to be to be involved and now we know the the insula seems to be involved as well so it's a circuit and when for the people who are treatment resistant so those are people who've tried every drug and you know they're very very severe um, they can go in and get these electrodes implanted which basically stimulate the the parts of the basal ganglia um, and they're permanently implanted they're connected to a battery pack that's implanted in the in just under the chest skin and um, it actually stimulates these subcortical areas, but and we don't sure we're not sure exactly what it's doing. If it's acting to sort of act as a lesion, or if it's acting to stimulate a circuit that was previously faulty, but we know it's doing something to the circuitry that's that's problematic in OCD patients, and it's telling them. Heather, I, I have to ask this of all of my neuroscience colleagues that I interview. So I've tangled with dualists quite a bit on my blog. Uh, mm-hmm. And the one thing they all say, whether it's Deepak Chopra or whoever, is that, oh, neuroscientists today know that the brain doesn't cause consciousness. They're sort of abandoning the materialist paradigm of consciousness in droves. And yet I have yet to meet a neuroscientist who actually thinks that. So for the record, what's your take on dualism and the notion of whether or not the physical processes, processes of the brain can completely explain consciousness as a phenomenon? I mean, I'm certainly not a dualist. I don't know any, not a single colleague who would claim to be a dualist. As a neuroscientist, pretty much a materialist. And and the consciousness, there's no such thing as disembodied consciousness. Consciousness doesn't exist outside of the brain. And the brain is who you are. If you get a lesion in the brain, you have a deficit in consciousness. If you knock out the brainstem, you're no longer conscious. I mean, it's a clear, you know, one-to-one correspondence or clear relationship in that level. And I've yet to meet a neuroscientist who's a dualist. I mean, I, I don't. Descartes was a dualist, but he wasn't a neuroscientist, right? So I right, mean, right. I don't, I don't, I don't know of any. And even Freud, I mean, Sigmund Freud, who came up with this whole theory of mind, um, he was a neuroscientist, and he ultimately believed that all of his ideas it can be instantiated. It is instantiated in the brain, and we, he just didn't have the technology at the time to understand it. But he even made a little neural sketch of what he thought the neural basis of repression was. So even the greatest, you know, theorists, one of the greatest theorists of trying to understand the mind completely believed that it was all instantiated in the brain. So what you're saying is that Deepak Chopra can suck it. <laughs> Don't quote me on that. <laughs> well, I'll get hate letters. <laughs> all right. Well, Heather, thank you so much for joining us. This was a great discussion. We really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a special theme this week because mm-hmm. I know you guys love themes. So mm-hmm. I just rack my brain. So to excited. The, the theme is vegetables. I That's love vegetables. 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 I love 
Steve, I love that. <laughs> you dead? So Your friend, the vegetable? You veritable yeah. vegetable. <laughs> Original Star Trek series. Anybody that emails us in the actual episode that that's in, we we will give you nerd props. You get nerd um, props, absolutely. So I'm going to tell you some facts about the taxonomy of common vegetables, and you guys oh, have to tell me God, <laughs> which one is the fiction. Somehow you picked the most boring property of vegetables. Like, <laughs> of all the things about vegetables to talk about, you picked the most boring thing. Thank taxonomy. you. Come on. Okay, here we go. Item number one. Corn and celery are both members of the oh. Zaya genus. Why? Who knows this, Steve? Seriously, like 15, there's 15 people in California that know the answer. The God, you're literally phoning this in, Steve. <laughs> cauliflower, item number two, cauliflower, <laughs> mustard, and turnip are all members of the same genus, Brassica. And item number three, tomatoes and potatoes are both members of the same genus, Solanum. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is one of those... Dreams you have at night, right? You're back in school and you're suddenly you have to take the final test and you're like, where, what the hell am I doing here? Where so, have I been all year? That's Steve, exactly Steve, what wait, this is. First, right off, now. first of all, I'm calling a Mickey on this. Number one. Number two. There's no Mickey in made, science fiction. Steve, you, you just made, you, you made like three or four people unbelievably happy that are listening <laughs> that know this and like a hundred thousand people pissed so, off. So Jay, let me tell you, let me simplify this for you. <laughs> what you have to decide is are Corn and celery related to each other closely? Are cauliflower, mustard, and turnip closely related? Or are potatoes and tomatoes closely related? That's really all you have to decide. Okay. You thank have, you. Thanks for dumbing it down. Well, now you were, you seemed upset, so I thought I would <laughs> clarify <laughs> for you. So instead of, sh- right. instead of flashing something what, shiny at No, no, no. <laughs> Rebecca's a vegetarian. She has to go. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. All right. I forgot that to get to my get my vegetarian license, I did have to take this written test that included all of these. So I figured I should have no problem with this at all. Yep. Uh, number one. That's it. Number number one. Number one's what? (laughs) Corn and celery. That's the fiction. Yeah, because I I don't know, Steve. I don't know. Corn and celery uh, look nothing alike. First of all, Uh, and they taste nothing. You put. You put butter on corn, but you put peanut butter on celery. Ooh, so, uh, interesting. Uh, that's what I'm fact. thinking. And uh, let's see, cauliflower, mustard, and turnip. Those are the things that are the least alike uh, amongst all these three groups. That is the most diverse, and so I think that that's probably correct because it's too ridiculous. And tomatoes and potatoes. I know that potatoes are part of the nightshade family. And tomato plants are toxic to cats. So, sure. Um, so, reasoning. that leaves me with corn and celery. Corn and celery are not related. Okay, there. Bob. I'm going to say three's fiction. Uh, tomatoes and potatoes, besides their spelling, are seem very different. Maybe more so than the other ones. And and I don't know if you... Uh, maybe I should have gone last. <laughs> I'll, I'll just say... Uh, I'll just say... To, I'll say number three, tomatoes and potatoes is fiction. Okay. Evan. Uh, I could say something about the tomatoes and potatoes, uh, being members of the same genus, uh, same genus Solanum. Uh, I'm thinking that that has something to do with the sun, Solanum. Is that why it's named that? You know, the cauliflower mustard turnip one, I thought, you know, when I think of mustard, I think of seeds, but I never really thought of the plant that, from which you get the seeds. So I've never thought about mustard as being in a group of 
other vegetables. Um, so I think that, that one's going to wind up being true. And corn and celery, bleh, ish, I don't know. I got nothing about Zaya gene, genus. So I'll say tomatoes and potatoes, fiction. And Jay. It's interesting. Okay. It's interesting. So, oh, thank you. It is. It is the, oh, thank, no, oh, thank no, you. it is the opposite of interesting. <laughs> no, because, it, you know, once you start teasing it out, you're like, okay, so what are the, the baseline uh, similarities, if any, between these? And the, the one that stands out to me is the last one about tomatoes and potatoes. You, you know, you make a quick comparison. You're like, they're nothing like each other. But when you say in the same genus, yeah, that could be a very broad description there. So the cauliflower, mustard, and turnip all belong to... The Caprica genus. I'm sorry. Sagittarius <laughs> genus. <laughs> um, Gaius, there's something. There's something about. <laughs> there's something about that. I don't know. It's tickling me. I may think that they do. Uh, you know, are, are related somehow. So, like, just because the back of my brain is saying that, I'm just going to take two off the table. So it's between the corn and celery and the tomatoes and potatoes. You know, corn and celery. Corn and celery seem like they have absolutely nothing in common. I mean, tomatoes and potatoes don't either. I mean, they have they, everything seems so different with them. So this is a fifty-fifty shot. I think I have here. Now, what did you How pick, do you Bob? <laughs> Three <laughs> tomatoes and potatoes. I'm no, pretty sure it's a thirty-three, thirty-three, thirty-three yeah. shot. But I just, I just want to start up that whole email fiasco about the the, the Monty Hall. Is right too high. Yeah. Monty, Monty Hall, Hall problem. problem. Love it. And Rebecca, you picked which one? <laughs> I picked corn and wow. celery. I think you should go wow. with cauliflower, mustard, and turnip just to make sure Steve doesn't no, completely no. get us. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna pick. I'm gonna pick that the first one, corn and celery, is the fake. Okay, GWR. Right, so, I mean, can't go wrong. There's one thing I want to add. What tomatoes and potatoes? Yeah, they seem very different to me. Um, but what really got me, and it's, it's probably nothing, was the genus Solanum. I mean. When I see that, the first thing I think, of course, is that Solanum is the virus that causes zombie zombification in the Max Brooks World War Z book. What? So, did you oh. just make that up, Steve, or is that a real genus? I don't know, but I felt I was compelled oh, to you, pick that one. Ah. If you picked that from Jay, World you should have noticed Z? that, dude. Oh, man. You should have mentioned that, Bob. You should have mentioned while you're that. Doing your thing. Why? You think he made that whole thing up? I think he. I think he made up Solanum. All right, that's well, stay, stay tuned. Stay so you, tuned. you all agree that cauliflower, mustard, and turnip are all members of the same genus Brassica. Sure. Just, despite the fact that they look nothing like each other. Yeah, sure. And that one is... <laughs> science. Science. Ah! So far, so good. <laughs> they are all cruciferous vegetables. Oh, of course. There's a, a few genuses in the cruciferous vegetable. So, I mean crunchy? Uh, group family, but this is uh, well, they, you know, cruciferous meaning that they Crucified. is cross-like because they have like four uh. leaves that create this cross-like. So that includes ca- cauliflower and all the things that look like cauliflower, broccoli, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, all of those things, collard greens. Those are obvious. Um fascinating. But Broccoli. mustard mustard seeds in the same genus. Now, Jay, genus is just one category up from species. So this is as closely related as you can get without being the same species. Yeah, that's true. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> I thought genus is above. Yeah. Oh. There's the order. Didn't we yeah. have to come up with a uh, yeah, I remember phrase that. to remember King, the five the King five Philip steps. came Phyllis. over for good spaghetti. Phylum. Or sex, Don't depending matter. on how old you were when you learned Good it. spaghetti, genus species. Um, yeah. Yeah. So 
The thing that you have to realize here is that the cauliflower plant, the mustard seed, turnip root, these are all different parts of the plant. That's why they could be so different and yet still be related. Uh, the the yes. plant, the, tur- mm. the, the green part of the turnip looks like, you know, other cruciferous vegetables, but you don't eat that. You eat the, you eat the root. So does that make sense? Yeah, that's you really cool. It's like, it's like looking at a hair and a toenail from a person. Like, looks yeah. different, but it's, uh, ver- they're very related. Different parts of the, uh, yeah, right, exactly. Okay, you creep. So let's, let's wow. go to number one. Corn and celery are both members of the Zaya genus. Jay and Rebecca, you think this one is the fiction. Bob yes. and Evan, you think this one is science. Mm-hmm. And this one is. Come on, baby. The fiction. Ah! <laughs> oh, it feels so good. <laughs> yes. After all that complaining. Uh, Rebecca, low, low five, low five. That was, that was, that was a real one. <laughs> well, I only had one what hand. What the hell? So, Lanham. Zaya, Zaya maize is corn. So corn is a member of the Zaya genus, and corn is a grass. It's one of the 900 species of grass, just like wheat and barley and rice and a lot of the other things that we eat, whereas celery is not a grass. Celery is in the genus Apium. It is specifically Apium graviolens variety dulce, which is, I think, means sweet. So yeah, so a completely different genus, not related at all. Which means that tomatoes and potatoes are both members of the same genus Solanum. Unbelievable. I was oh surprised to find that they yeah, were so closely related. That's uh, awesome. Again, I also and? think because they're from different parts of the plant, um, which is why it takes you by surprise. But Solanum, yeah. How does, how does a zombie virus, how is that involved? It's not. It's just, that's just the <laughs> oh, name of it. This is a very, a very large, a family of vegetables, including tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, potatoes, very, very many species. So, wow. uh, yeah, good job. Yeah, well, Jane you know, Rebecca. 15 years of vegetarianism <laughs> pays off. <laughs> and wild guessing, yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say wild, Steve. No, you, you I would say, say pretty wild. I would say very educated guessing. <laughs> <laughs> so, wasn't that fun, Jay? Come on. You know, it was interesting, but it, it, when you first laid it on us, I literally, like, my hair got blown back. I'm like, what the hell am I going to say without wait, this stuff? Wait till next week, Jay. It'll be fruit. <laughs> well, actually, one of the items was a fruit. Well, tomato is a culinary. It is, yeah, t- tomato is a fruit. Yeah, it is actually yeah, a fruit. that's what oh, I so just said, It's so yeah. fiction. <laughs> it's a culinary vegetable, but it is technically a fruit. Yeah. Ah, well, that's what threw Bob and I off. Yeah, go with still, that. Still classified plus, as a vegetable. But yeah. Plus a zombie um, Like strawberries are not fruits. All right, Steve, let's end the science or fiction now. Nor okay. are bananas. <laughs> Nor, well, <laughs> bananas berries. are fruits. They're berries. The berries oh, are berries. fruits. Yes. Well. Yeah. Well, I already did the banana science or fiction, if you recall. That was a while ago. We do. Yes. All right. Well, Jay, <laughs> hit us up with a quote. Uh, Chris Clark, a listener from Alexandria, Virginia, and he has a, a superhero name, Chris Clark. Uh, he sent in um, an awesome Carl Sagan quote that I'd never heard before and is is pretty cool. Check this out. Every kid starts out as a natural-born scientist, and then we beat it out of them. A few trickle through the system with their wonder and enthusiasm for science intact. Now, that is a quote, of course, written by the epic and eternal Carl Sagan. That is, a, that is a cool quote, yep. All right, we have a quick announcement before we close out. Eugenie Scott, you guys remember Eugenie, right? Yeah. Of course, yes, absolutely. We, we have to have her on the show soon because we she just announced that she's going to be retiring 
from the National Center for Science Education. Uh, It's hard to imagine the NCSC without her. I love the the, rock band. Wow. Have you seen the job description for replacing her? There, it's like (laughs) must be super person. Yeah. Right. It's and it's realistic because that is her. Yeah. Yeah. I clicked on it like thinking like who could they possibly find to replace Jeannie Scott? And I read the job description and the qualification. I'm like, wow, nobody. Like, hopefully somebody, but. Rebecca, but wouldn't we know who that person is? You know, if you had her skills and everything, we would already know who you are. I don't know. There's, there might be one person there. I hope that there's a person out there that's like gone under the radar that's been like waiting waiting in the wings. wings. Yeah. Yeah. But did Jeannie write her own job description? I don't know. She might have. So maybe you think you're saying maybe she exaggerated a little bit. I'm just saying, you know, if someone has to write. So, Rebecca, write a job description to replace yourself. Yeah, it must, like, fart rainbows. (laughs) Oh, that's you? I I thought I was hallucinating. Anyway, she asked us to announce Skeptical, the Northern California Conference on Science and Skepticism. Mm -hmm. It's a day-long event with speakers, panels, and discussions with a a wide array of subjects. This is going to be held June 15th, Saturday, June 15th, 2013, at the Berkeley Doubletree Hotel in Berkeley, California. Speakers will include Eugenie Scott, Anthony Pratkinis, the amazing Randy, DJ Grothy, Jill Tarter from the SETI Institute, and more. Um, tickets are available at skepticalcon.org. Steve, don't forget, we're in full production for Ock the Skeptical Caveman. How could the, I forget, uh, Jay? A, a, it's our web miniseries. So we've been working really hard. We're in, we're in production now. We're in pre-production. We're shooting in August and we really need a lot of help. Like we're starting to flesh out our, our crew and we're seeing there's lots of holes in it and we just want to put out a call. If anyone's interested in helping, whether or not you have film related skills, you know, we need what if to, you have nunchuck to, skills? I would actually entertain nunchuck skills because I want someone to protect me when I'm on the set. So, you know, a few things like we need. We, ne- we need set builders and prop <laughs> prop builders, you know, costume designers. Um, we're putting out a, an actor casting call. So, if, you know, it's another thing. Anybody with any interest whatsoever in helping, whether or not you're fully skilled or not, email us at – you can email us at info at theskepticsguide.org. And put, I'm going to put on my producer hat here. We would like to maximize the production quality of the web series as much as possible. So there is still room. While we did raise uh, a considerable amount of money for um, equipment, et cetera, there is always room for improvement. So if anybody would like to become a producer of the Ox series or if you would like to be a member of the cast or essentially make a generous donation uh, to inc- improve the production quality of the show, then email Jay and I and we will discuss with you uh, what, what you would like in compensation for being one of the co-producers of the series. Well, thank Steve, you. For- Steve, wait. Before you close out, I just want to say you're doing a great job so far <laughs> this year. Thank you, Jay. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me this week, everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Steve. You're welcome. <laughs> and until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. 
Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.